podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to 99.94, the sound of cricket. Download our app for all our podcasts and commentary. Our shows include Red Inca and Double Century, which are hosted by me, plus shows on the West Indies, England, South Africa, Sri Lanka, and India. You can find them all via our social media at 9994DM or by searching in your podcast or YouTube places for the name of your team and 99.94, where we talk cricket. Welcome to the Wagon Wheel Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Kimber, and this show is part of the 99.94 Network. On this show, we record weekly with questions from the audience. This podcast is funded by Patreon, which you can join by clicking a link in the show notes. And there are many other benefits, but one of which is to ask questions first on this show. Welcome to Wagon Wheel. All right, let's get this started. As usual, the people who get to, they get started the quickest, started the quickest, get the party started, are the people on Patreon. So if you want your questions definitely answered, uh, join up on Patreon. I think it's the first class tier and above. There's other things that you get as well. Um, and you can do that. Also, uh, if you want to ask a super chat, uh, you, you can do that also. But let us get to the questions. Uh, Ian says, is Adel Rashid at 200K the bargain price of the IPL auction? So I'm tr- going to try and get these numbers right for you, Ian. My memory is that he's played about... 15 games of T20 cricket in India. And in them, he's got a uh, runs per over of about 8.3 and bowling average of 33. Now, it's not a lot of games, to be fair. And they're probably scattered over you know, different times and everything else. I think the general feeling that I've heard from scouts, managers, coaches, players, is that they wonder if Adol Rashid might be slightly too slow for specifically you know, Indian players in, in the IPL. So not so much um, that that would be a problem for all um, uh, you know, batters around world cricket, but in India against Indian batters, they wonder if he's a little bit too slow. And I think that's one of the reasons he hasn't been picked up before. But, uh, you know, he'll be bowling with uh, Umran Malik in the middle, which is a very similar situation that he had with uh, Liam Plunkett, although Umran Malik's a little bit faster, obviously, but not, maybe not quite as experienced. That's a good partnership for Adol Rashid. It, looking at the lineup on paper, you'd say that they probably have to play him <laughs> um, at the moment, or I certainly have to give him a fair go. Maybe but it might, might be the best way of putting that. So uh, we're about to find out, I suppose, if it's a good bargain. I, I think it's a good price to play, pay for him. I didn't can't remember what Zampa ended up going for, but um, uh, yeah, I think it's it's worth a punt, and I think it's probably a bit ridiculous that teams haven't given it more of a go. And it, last time we played in the IPL, are you playing? trying to think did he play a game or was it for england I remember him seeing him bowl in, in one game and it didn't come off and i remember having a message from someone involved with another team saying you know this is why it doesn't work um the interesting thing is that no one's really given a elongated version it's a bit like the benny howe thing of oh you know benny howe won't work at the top level well unless he plays a full season at the top level somewhere uh we're not going to know uh so and i think that's very similar with adol rashid Cameron says, uh, would you add more value? Who would add more value to the team? Would I? Uh, a good batter who can bowl a bit or a good bowler who can bat a bit. So if the, the, the tricky thing here is that essentially, you haven't named the format, Cameron, so it makes it a little bit tricky. But if you look at, let's say, a good bowler who can bat a bit, bats at number eight. Uh, 
test cricket, maybe the, the average for a number eight is I think around 20, 22, maybe. Uh, I, I could be wrong, the, the general thing. So in order for them to be really good, you're looking at them having to be, what, 33% better than, than average. You're looking at someone who can make perhaps 100 every, I don't know, 10 to 15 innings. Maybe. You know, you're not looking for someone who's going to make anything more than that. But every, every now and again, they can pop in with 100, and they're probably averaging what a number seven does. That would give you really good impact for a number eight. A, a batter who can bowl, obviously, it does depend um, on, on what they could do. But if you have someone who can give you a legitimate 10 overs, a test, so let's say Muhammad Afiz, Dean Watson, I think someone else who's, you can't just, it's not like facing Jonathan Trott. Um, it's not like facing, you know, Rohit Sharma. If you're, if you're facing someone who is a legitimate 10 overs where they could get your wicket and you, you still have to, you know, deal with them, Colin de Grandon may, may be another very good example of this, uh, then in that case, that's far more useful because that allows you an extra tactical weapon. It allows you to rest your bowlers more. Um, and in certain situations, you might just have you know conditions that favour them. And I think if you look at a test match, you really want a test match. Uh, you know, the, the five bowlers is what every team is looking for, right? Once you get more than five bowlers, it becomes a little bit tricky with rotations and everything else. But five bowlers certainly seems like the the ideal there. So that's in test match cricket. I suppose in limited overs cricket, it's kind of the same. It depends, again, on how good the, uh, the bowling is. But again, I think it's probably, I think it's more often uh, of, of high use. I think if you look at the all-rounders who are most um, respected, it tends to be more Sobers and Callis and Imran Khan and perhaps Keith Miller, if you go back a little bit, um, uh, Ian Botham, and maybe less so Kapil Dev, Richard Hadley, Ian Warren, Richie Benno. Those sorts of all-rounders. And it's not that they weren't, you know, some of them were low-end all-rounders. Kapodev probably could have batted slightly higher. It could, could have been maybe more like both of them. But the other guys could bat in the top six, which meant that there was a genuine extra bowling um, uh, bowler available to their teams. And in, in some cases, without losing anything on the batting. That's, I think, probably the best uh, case when you're looking at all-rounders. Uh, Motorsport 101 says, um, has Sam Curran really come along as a T20 so much that he's now worth the most of any IPL auction fee ever? Important to remember that. That's a very well, uh, well worded there as well. I see a lot of people talking about how Sam Curran is the most expensive player in the IPL. There are IPL players getting paid a lot more and have in, for a long time than uh, Sam Curran has in this one. Uh, it was the highest public fee is a perfect way of putting it. Um, I feel like he's a decent 6-7 finisher with the bat with decent bowling. Uh, but a little bit shy of the top all-rounders in the format. Well, look, there aren't many top all-rounders in the format, Dre. And I think that's the first thing that you kind of need to remember when, 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 you, when you say this. I think of if you look at his numbers, he probably has more flexibility in his batting than just being a 6 or 7. Uh, I would assume that he could do a lot of damage in the power play. I, 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 I don't think I've looked at his numbers directly. Also think that, you know, in certain situations, he might be able to bat, you know, at four or five. Um, that's already far more important than just someone who can bat at six or seven because it gives you that added uh, variability. The bowling is really, really interesting because I mean, you say decent bowling. I would have said the last time he played in the IPL that 
was he even someone that you would rely on for four overs a game? He was probably at that stage someone that was more a three overs a game up front. Uh, and then maybe you could try and burgle an over late. He's completely changed now. And I don't know how much the rate he's bowling um, based on what we've seen of recent times. It, you know, is he the, you know, one of the best death bowlers in the world? Um, I mean, he, tactically, what he did makes sense. And I could see why it should hold up for a long period of time. But I'm not sure if I look at his bowling there and I, and I say to myself that this is a consistent threat going ahead. Um, but remember that in between the mega auctions, what you're really paying for is uh, positions, right? So look back at, you know, Riley Meredith and, uh, you know, and, and um, uh, who was the other one? Joey Richardson and uh, Jameson and these sorts of players. They're not worth that much in a normal auction cycle because they're not, you know, Davilius and Andre Russell and those sorts of players. But what happens is that they get to a certain point where they are, that team just needs that one thing and they are willing to pay for it and quite often have to go up against another team who's also willing to pay for it, right? Uh, and so you see the sort of Chris Morris fees and people go, oh, he's not worth that. It doesn't really matter if, if because we have an auction, because of this kind of system that they have, what they've really done is they've created a system where this player is worth that much. And you see it in other sports that have free agency. And really the auctions at the IPL, the main auction is like a version of a draft. The other smaller auctions outside of the mega auction are really a much more like free agency where you're, you're bidding um, on players specifically. And, and I think in this particular case, that's why this has happened. He's coming off being the player of the World Cup. I didn't think he was the best player in the World Cup. I'm not sure that anything he's doing at the moment will ho hold up at this level, considering that we've seen him play here before without being this kind of player. Having said that, Ben Stokes also got paid a lot of money, and Ben Stokes' numbers have never jumped off the page. Uh, we just saw Cameron Green get paid essentially an obscene amount of money based on uh, 21 or 22 overs in professional T20 cricket. Team, teams are trying to, uh, you know, uh, especially in this auction, they're trying to make up for mistakes they made um, in the previous auction and or, you know, if, if at all possible, you know, elevate their side. So that's why you end up getting paid. Josh says, does Williamson belong at number four in T20s rather than opening at number three? So I think that position for me uh, and any player who chooses to play it, it makes a lot more sense if they bat at number four. And the reason it makes a lot more sense if they bat at number four is if you're flying and it's a really good pitch, you don't really want the sort of person who's there to stop issues happening and clogging up the lane, right? You know, essentially that's what, what it comes to. You, you really want that that to be free-flowing. And if you have that player batting opening or even batting at three, they're more likely to do that. The other reason you want them to bat at four is if, if you do get off to a flying start and the, and the conditions are in favor of the batters, that player can then move down and, and play another role. Whereas if they're opening, they're already in. And even if they're batting first drop, there's a chance they might be in within, you know, what is it? Uh, I think we get, well, like 1.5 wickets in every power play on average. Might have made that number up. I think it's right. Um, something around there anyway. Um, and so from that perspective, again, you know, actually it must be more than that. It must be closer to two. So either way. So, you know, you, you have, you know, a number three, chances are he's going to be batting early on in the power play. 
in that scenario. So no, again, uh, I would I would not have that kind of player um, opening unless that's the only way they can bat, um, which is not the case for someone like Williamson. Arun says, "What do you make of India's T20 squad?" Oh God, I knew there was something I was supposed to look up. India twenty squad, Sri Lanka. Uh, so uh, Rohit, Virat, uh, KL, Bhuvi, all missing, um, and it looks like they're trying to get rid of their conservatism. I mean, we've seen a couple of their squads like this before. Um, there's one reason I disagreed with what you've said, and let me find. And now I'm looking. All right. Um, I'm looking at the ODI squad. Oops. T20 squad, there it is. Um, I mean, Guy Quad is not a, just a hugely fast scorer. And there was someone else in that squad that I thought. Um, but yeah, most of the others, uh, Tripathi, Sanjay Sampson, um, are all more or less those kinds. Um, uh, Mukesh Kumar is an interesting, uh, you know, uh, choice there. Ishan Kishan's not as fast a scorer as I think we kind of give him credit for. He's had some very, very um, fast-scoring seasons and some very, very low-scoring seasons. And Guy Cord, I just want to look at Guy Cord again. Because I get a feeling. Let's have a look. So Guy Cord, his fastest-scoring season in the IPL is 136. That's still another anchor, right? Like... <laughs> He's young and he doesn't have the baggage of some of the other players, but it's still more or less the same thing. Ishan Kishan, again, um, last couple of years, hasn't quite been scoring at that level. This isn't Prisby Shaw yet, right? So I do think, uh, I, I wouldn't suddenly go, oh, this is a new generation. I think what they're doing is what they should be doing. They're trying a couple of different players. I, I find it interesting that Shiva Mavi is in there because I, I'm still a very big fan of him. But having done uh, you know, a lot of research on the IPL over the last week or so, uh, there's a big video series coming out on that. Um, his numbers don't, don't match up with the eye test of, you know, when I watch him bowl, I feel like he's a slightly better bowler. But interesting seeing him back in that squad as well. Um, but, yeah, no, I don't, I don't see that 100% as what, uh, of shedding the conservatism. But at the same time, um, it, we have seen them try these sorts of lineups before. I think Hood is the really interesting one. I'm not quite sure who does on that level of, you know, being a consistent. Um, I, I'm not sure he's going to be able to do what he did in the IPL consistently um, internationally uh, is at the top level. But, you know, good luck to him. Let's hope he does. Will says, are these the worst batting lineups for Australia in recent memory or are many people overreacting and not giving Aussie bowls enough credits? Um, so we have the South African bowling batting lineup and the West Indies batting lineup. In the one summer, yeah, it would be hard to say they're not. Uh, that's that's not to discredit the Australian um, bowlers because I think we've seen that even when India won that series, thought other than getting tired, I thought the Australian bowlers were outstanding in that series as well. Um, probably there should have been some restings. That, you know, some of those guys looked a bit exhausted, but you know we've seen them now at home in a way. It, it's a fantastic attack. So I, there's nothing taking away from that. But how many of the West Indian uh, players would get into the other top eight uh, batters, I should say, would get into the other uh, top eight um, sides? Um, I'd say very, very few. I think Craig Brathwaite, would he slip into the South Africa's side and maybe Sri Lanka's side? Perhaps. Um, all things considered, I'm not sure there's anyone else that, that would. 
and South Africa, South Africa, you know, it really is. Maybe Verena is good, and I'm not saying he's not, but we need to see more, of course. Outside of him and, you know, Temba Bavuma hitting a bit of a form uh, patch for a couple of years, Elga and, and Quentin de Kock were quite clearly their test match quality batters. Um, so, yeah, I unless I'm trying to think of other teams who might have toured at the same time, but I would have to say that this is certainly um, – two of the weaker uh, teams. But I don't think that takes away from the Australian bowlers, but you know, that's uh, both, both of those things are true at the same time. Neil says, um, what do you make of Steve Smith's new batting setup? Uh, well, I mean, he's made runs again. Um, uh, he, I mean, you say he wasn't in a horrendous place. He was in a horrendous place for him. I don't think, for, considering everyone else, it wasn't too bad. And he had the same... Uh, you know, the same period where everyone stopped batting well, he stopped batting well, as, uh, which, which also makes sense. Um, do I think he has problems against the short ball? I think he has problems more against the short ball. The problem was before that he also had this problem with the back of a length ball. That seems, that's the, you don't actually face that many short balls. It's tiring to bowl that many unless you're Neil Wagner. Um, and, you know, very few people are accurate with them, so they can't bowl them consistently. So, you don't face that many back of a length balls. You could face someone who could bowl, you know, six straight overs of that, right? That was the one that sort of that area outside of stump. I think the good thing was that he went off and fixed it because I felt like for a while he wasn't kind of owning up to the fact that there had been a drop off there. Um, uh, so, so from that perspective, um, I thought he looked a lot better. I think we'll have to see him at home and away for a little while, but he, he looks a lot better to me now than he did when, when he was, I don't want to say, well, it is a slump, I suppose. But, you know, slump's probably an unfair word. But uh, when he went through his personal slump, yeah, I think he certainly looks a lot better now. But I don't want to back this. I, we, t- we see too many Australian batters, and I'm not saying Smith is this, but we see too many Australian batters towards the end of their career especially really, really struggle in test cricket. And then they they have a couple of series against the team that is getting absolutely pulverized and they make a lot of runs at home and then it doesn't translate away from home. That's just a pattern I kind of feel like I've seen a lot in, in test cricket for Australia. So I'd like to see him at home in a way over, you know, over a similar period. It was the same as, you know, when, when he struggled for six months, it wasn't wasn't willing to say it was a proper slump at that stage. Um, it could have just been, you know, a, a variety of conditions. So. Um, yeah, I'm not willing to say it's completely solved, but I think he solved a big chunk of what was happening. Sandeep says, uh, what, while all the focus on baseball, how did England go from a bowling unit not capable of picking 20 wickets in overseas test match to doing that three times out of three in Pakistan? Okay, so the, more, the, the most important thing here is when you're batting at the pace that they're batting and scoring the amount of runs that they're scoring, they're buying themselves more time. Time is a big thing for their bowlers. If you look at the strike rate of Broad and Anderson when they travel, uh, they need extra time to take those wickets. They can keep pressure on. Uh, they can bowl very well, but they are not, uh, outside of English conditions, bowlers who take wickets in, um, you know, in quick succession in the way that perhaps Stain and, uh, I don't know, Cummins and, and you know, some of the other uh, bowlers around the world who, who've traveled probably slightly better than those two have. So I think that's a big part of it. But I also think that before there were, I mean, I think before there was, so baseball isn't just the batting. I think it really is the way that they think about, you know, their decisions, uh, the tactics that they use in the field, but also the there is a new energy in that team that you can't deny, right? 
you know, there are some times where we go on and on about these things and it's like, well, actually, this team's better now just because this captain got this, these players. That's not the case here. They, they went with a new method and that all, all the way goes through to, you know, what they do in the field, the way they think about dismissing batters and everything else. Even, even at times, you've seen them cycling through multiple plans really, really quickly, which is probably, again, not the, the standard. Certainly, that's not how they got on top of the world back in 10-11. No, it was more sticking to one plan, waiting for it to work. Now they're cycling through things a little bit quicker. The other thing I would probably add, add is that Jack Leach just looks like a better bowler now. That is, of all the players, he's the one where you would say there seems to be a technical change in his game. And that technical change means that he's getting a little bit more drop, a little bit more drift, and a little bit more spin, which are all related, of course, um, which means now he's not just dangerous when the when the pitch is absolutely ragging and, there was a time when facing Jack Leach on a flat pitch looked very simple for an international player. It just doesn't look like that again. Just that small step up is quite big because it means that they've got a consistent threat from the other end and then they can rotate everyone through. Oh, sorry. Uh, James says, in decades past, Test Series opponents would socialize together between matches. That doesn't seem to happen anymore, but they don't have any time between matches. I'm being honest. Um, is this an inevitable consequence of professionalism? No, I think in the old days, they only have two or three days off. Um, it, I, I don't think it would be that different. I, I mean, I think now players are probably closer than they've ever been before. They don't hang out in that particular way. But they also don't stay in the same hotels um, that often. Uh, you know, there's more than, the, you know, in some days it'd be like, you know, I've been on on smaller tours where there's like one flight. So, you know, everyone has to go on it. That's not as common anymore because there's so many more planes and there's so many more options to go on. Teams go at different times. Like one team might leave straight afterwards. Another one might be like, well, let's go to a water park for a day or, you know, let's play golf here or let's go on a boat ride or whatever it may be. Um, so, so I think that was all changed. I don't think it's just professionalism. I think there's less time. Um, I think there's probably more mixing between opposition teams now on an individual level. There's probably less of the big mass um, uh, way of doing it. Um, so it's just different, James. I'm not sure it's better or worse, but, uh, you know, it's just the, the way that things have gone. Manon says, which IPL teams would do well if the IPL was a test league? Oh, God, I meant to get the IPL squads up for this question, and I forgot IPL squad. So the old answer was before the mega auction was um, – Delhi, that a, a bowling attack that you know would have completely stood up uh, in Test match cricket, uh, and what you're really looking for here is the bowling lineup that will best stand up. So Gujarat's bowling lineup wouldn't particularly stand up. CSK is interesting. Let me have a look because they've got the three spinners. Although I don't know what Tikshana's record is. Um, I know. Just realised I'm looking at last year's scores. Oops. Um, yeah, uh, because it, I'd have to have a look at Tikshana's first-class record. But if you think about it, you've got Moen Ali, Ravi Jadeja, and Tikshana. Um, all, again, you know, three different um, kinds of finger spinners. Uh, certainly in Asia would be very good, but also with the batting of Moen Ali and Jadeja, that's quite handy as well. I'm trying to think who else. I think i got Santana. Probably doesn't get a game there. Pretorius, Stokes. Jameson, yeah, probably need one more seamer there, I would have thought. One more frontline seamer. Uh, Deepak Chahar. 
maybe. Uh, so let's have a look at Delhi these days. Yeah, Anrik Nokia. It's not quite what they used to have, is it? Um, but yeah, that, that's kind of what you're looking for. You're looking for um, that sort of four or five uh, top bowlers because you can, as South Africa has shown, you can kind of cobble together some wins uh, with, with batters. So what if AKR, well, Andre Russell's knees wouldn't make it through. And Sun on Orion um, hasn't bowled in a first-class game in a long time. But And if they have Lockie and Shakib there. Yeah, look, it's an interesting question. I almost have to go through it uh, bowler by uh, bowler. Oh, actually, I reckon right at the moment it would be Mumbai, wouldn't it? Because they've got Berendorf, Green, Richardson, Dwan Johnson, um, uh, Jofra, Jasper. They probably don't have a spinner, though, do they? Um, I don't know. Tim David to bowl some spin. Uh, but that's a fantastic bowling lineup, I would have thought, in Test cricket. And then the batters, you know, whoever. Whoever holds the bat. That is not a board. Surf says, um, I don't know how the draft works in picking players. I think the BPL used it this year, and I know American sports have used it for a long time. How's the draft different from an auction? So from no auction, player's name comes up, and it's like if you're in an auction for, I don't know, cows, beef, <laughs> um, whatever you do, it houses, you know, it comes up, you decide whether you want to pay for it or not, and you, you make a bid. Auctions work on where you've come in the previous year. So generally, uh, they work in a sort of in a system of uh, the bottom team gets the top pick all the way through to the top team getting the bottom pick, and then and and, and all the way through. Um, as far as I'm aware, there isn't much, um, you know, more uh, to it than that. I can't think of any other auctions that are slightly different, but there are different kinds of auctions as well. There are auctions where certain players you can only get in certain rounds, um, and uh, not all the sorry, I'm talking about auctions, I meant drafts. There are certain drafts where they work in slightly different ways. It's not exactly ideal. The problem with the auction system, sorry, keep saying auction when I mean draft. The problem with the draft system as it stands at the moment is we are drafting players uh, who are new players and who are experienced players. We all in one draft. Realistically, once you have played, I don't know, four years of uh, of any, you know, I don't know, let's say 200 professional, four, yeah, maybe it's, I don't know, 150 professional T20 games or whatever the cutoff, cutoff should be, should really be a free agent, should be able to pick which team you want to go to, you know, what kind of role that you want to do. Um, and, and teams can still bid on you and you have the ability to do that. What What we're really doing with auctions is it's kind of like a fake auction situation. And a lot of the auctions out there that you look at, in some of these small leagues and not even auctions, like quite a few of the players are already pre um, signed up with some of these teams. And so it's all a bit ridiculous. I have been talking to some leagues recently. Uh, uh, two different leagues asked me my opinions on what, what I would do. And what I basically said was if a player has had whatever your threshold is for a professional career in, in that league, if you wanted to, or in T20 in general, they go into the free agency pot. And then you have um, a, then you have uh, the ability to draft a certain amount of uh, players from uh, uncapped players, internationals, and um, as in uncapped in your league. And then you have a young players draft, which is, I think, um, something that would be slightly more interesting and a little bit uh, better. But at the moment, it's kind of, we use the word draft a lot and they're not, 
Philly drafts is probably the best way of putting it. Um, and the auction obviously means that, you know, players are even more elevated than they would be in a sort of free agency situation. So in free agency, you might go to a player, you might go to Sam Curran and go, okay, uh, we want to pay you $1.2 million. And then two other teams say $1.3 million and $1.5 million. Um, and then perhaps one team who might own the rights to Sam Curran might have the ability to, to top that at the end. The problem with this auction, of course, is it gets out of hand. Then you only end up with one player rather than all the players you need in your squad. Um, and, it, you know, it's good for TV, I suppose. But, um, you know, the, the, what I would say is that what they should be trying to build is a culture where we're talking about the transactions of players far more often anyway. But I think I'm on my own with that one at this point. Christopher says, do you agree with the current retired out rule and they can just carry on your innings at a full of wicket? I wondered if you've got that wrong, Christopher, because if you retire out, you're out. Um, so you can't come back in. If you're retired hurt, you can come back in. Um, uh, so, yeah, I, I'm not sure if you meant retired hurt and you've got confused there. Uh, retired hurt, you can come back in. At the moment, I don't have any massive issue with that. You can certainly use it tactically. I remember there was a game where we thought that Kyron Pollard might have even retired out. Uh, turned out he retired hurt. He had a migraine or something, um, went off, had some pills, took a moment to, I don't know, look at a blank wall, came back out and smashed a couple in the last over. Um, he Because it was Kyron Pollard, my first thought was he was using that for tactical reasons because <laughs> that's what he does. Um, but it doesn't appear like he was in that particular uh, case. So retired hurt could certainly be used in that way, probably has before and probably will be again. Um, but retired out is uh, you're out. So it's a lot more finite. And James says, in your chat with Barrett recently, you mentioned a trend for spinners bowling fast in the last decade or two. However, this style of spin bowling has been has historical precedence with O'Reilly, Underwood, Chandrasekhar. It does. <clears throat> Go back and have a look at the footage of those guys. Um, my guess is that none of them are as quick as Syed Ajmal or Rashid Khan based on footage that I've, I've looked at, at all of them. And it's a bit like saying that the old seamers were quicker. I think there is a natural limit for how quick spin bowling can be bowled because there's a natural limit for how quick fast bowling can be bowled. And we know that a back-of-the-hand slow ball, for instance, comes out at about 105 to 110 kilometers an hour, and Rashid Khan and Shahid Afridi bowled at about 105 kilometers an hour with Everest spin. I don't think these are uh, – I don't think that's an accident that those numbers are roughly the same – I would say back of the hand slower ball probably is a little bit slower than what you can bowl a leg spinner or even a finger wrong in. But the, the point is that those people have a very fast arm speed as well. And we tend to not think about it in that sort of sense. So if you're talking about it from, I think Underwood is perhaps a little bit different just because he was probably maybe more in that sort of Sid Barnes type of bowler where he was perhaps more of a cutter slash spinner would be my guess. Uh, you haven't put Sid Barnes in. So Sid Barnes actually played even earlier than the guys that you've mentioned. And he was regularly referred to as a seam bowler and he referred to himself as a spinner. So he was obviously another fast spinner. And there's a lot, there's a lot of go- uh, bowlers out there that you look at their Crick Info or their Crick Buzz um, page and they'll be called one thing. And then you go and read an article and they'll be called something else. And then another article will say something else on them. So there were a lot of mixture bowlers. There are a lot of bowlers that didn't particularly bowl one thing or another. But we can see through, 
I, I don't think, um, I, for instance, Shane Warne were, and was considered uh, a faster spinner when he first sort of came through. And by the end of his career, he was considered a very slow spinner. We have seen um, spinners getting quicker and quicker when you look at the Hawkeye data over a period of time now, uh, you know, over what's that now, 20 years. I think it's, Again, unrealistic to think that these other players were were bowling at that speed. So when you say that Chandrasekhar was quick, remember who Chandrasekhar bowled with. Go and have a look at the footage of Bisham Beatty bowling. He is incredibly slow. Uh, I think uh, Nathan Lyons probably, or Majid Haq uh, from, from Scotland, but Nathan Lyon of the test-playing bowlers is probably the slowest spinner um, of modern times. And I think if you watch him bowl and you watch Bishop Beatty bowl, you would say that Nathan Lyon is considerably quicker than Bishop Beatty. So when you're talking about Chandrasekhar being quick, what you're talking about him is being quick for his era. The same way that Larwood was quick for his era, the same way that Truman was quick uh, for his era. Um, you know, all, all these, or, you know, Linwall and Miller. That doesn't necessarily mean that if you took, you know, Linwall or Miller and you put them into the era now, they would be bowling at the same pace as everyone else because I think that's just, it's just clearly not true. And I think that's probably the case uh, with O'Reilly and Chandrasekhar. Underwood might just be slightly different because I do think he was a, you know, a, 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 I don't think he was a conventional off spinner. He was probably more like uh, Ben Lachlan um, or Benny Howe, uh, those sorts of uh, guys and what they're doing with the ball rather than an actual, um, uh, you know, normal off spinning bowler. That might be the only slight difference there. But, yeah, there are plenty of cases. And, and again, I don't think that's a mistake. I don't think it's an accident that um, Sid Barnes, then Bill O'Reilly, then um, Underwood, Chandrasekhar were all really, really successful spin bowlers when being a lot quicker than anywhere, everyone else. If there were lots of spin bowlers who were quicker than everyone else, I think they all would have filtered into the game. But generally, that wasn't the case. Um, and there's absolutely no doubt, and we could see it through the ball by ball data, or sorry, through the Hawkeye data, that spin bowling and pace bowling is getting quicker in each generation. If not individual bowlers, then certainly in total. And so you have bowlers now who I think, you know, someone like Jadeja probably bowls, what, around 1995. Um, and that's kilometers, of course. That would have been considered absolute lightning spin bowling, you know, 40 or 50 years ago. And now we have plenty of bowlers who probably bowl a little bit quicker than Jadeja. Um, and and so things do change from that that perspective. Um, I don't know what Anil Kumble's paces were, but I think he was, what, high 80s, low 90s? Um, he wouldn't be considered a fast spin bowler anymore. And he was in his era. So uh, that's a, a very important one to remember um, that, you're talking about whether it's a bit like saying that they had big hitters. You know, you had Hammond and you had, you know, Clive Lloyd and, you know, had George Bonner and these sorts of big hitters. It's not that big hitters are new, new to this era. It's just that in those, in those days, you had a couple, you had Jessup and you had Trumper and a few others. Whereas now, you know, even small batters um, have the ability to clear, you know, most batters in, in world cricket can clear the boundary if they actually need to be able to do it. That has not been the case throughout the history of cricket. And that, that's kind of what we're talking about when we're talking about the general pace or the general power um, going up. Anyway, we'll have a uh, short break here uh, where I will be just trolling through your questions just to see uh, what I can answer. And I'll come back after the break and uh, get to as many as I can. 
Hi, I'm Nikesh Raghani, commentator and host of the India on 99.94 podcast. Several times each week, my co-host Sarah Waris and I will be bringing you the very best in Indian cricket chat. Whether we're discussing the legend of Julan Goswami, Kale Rahul's strike rate, the men's T20 death bowling woes, or the latest controversy involving the BCCI, we've got you covered. You can listen and subscribe via your usual podcast provider. Just search for India on 99. You can watch us via YouTube and you can download the 99.94 app. If you love Indian cricket, then join our conversation. All right, let's get to some of the questions in the chat. Ankit says, oh, super chat. Thank you, sir. Uh, Rajasthan Royals uh, would have been left with only 10 like rupees had their bid for Brook been successful. Yeah, this is kind of what I was going back to before. I think the auction, it's not bad. I mean, it's good for TV. I'm not sure it's as good for TV as it was when it started, of course, because we're a little bit more used to it. And it and it hasn't quite become like NBA or NFL draft at the moment, although it still could. Um, but I, I think uh, maybe I think a bit more from a tactical point of view of, you know, what you're trying to get into your team and how you're trying to fix your lineup. I do kind of feel that if you have to overpay for Harry Brook, who's never proved himself, like there should be a cap on how much Harry Brook and and Cameron Green are being paid, being that we have absolutely no idea what they're going to do in the IPL. I think Harry Brook, there's no reason why he shouldn't have a good year, but we saw that it took Livingston a little while probably to have a, a, a very good year. I think Harry Brook's a little bit better than him, but similar kinds of players in many ways. And then you look at Cameron Green. Again, it might take him two or three years. So he's getting paid one of the highest wages in the IPL. And it might take him four years to get good. And that's one of the things that I'm looking at is that, that I think those younger players coming through, I've, I've got no problem with younger players getting huge amounts of money once they have uh, you know, uh, proven themselves. But it's kind of a bit ridiculous that you might, you might pay Cameron Green $2 million, but you might, I was going to say Daniel Sams, but Daniel Sams is not in that team. Um, so who's in that team? You might pay him $2 million, but do they have anyone young on this squad? Um, of course they don't. Let me find a better. <laughs> Let me find another one. Ah, um, yeah. So, so you might play one of those younger players, you know, just an absolutely extraordinary high amount of money, but they might have to play a role player, you know, a, a David Miller, Aaron Finch type player, right? Who, Probably it, it's beyond them to be able to get those big deals. But you also, well, Aaron, in Aaron Finch's case, he's moved on, but I'm talking about Aaron Finch about three or four years ago. But those sorts of players have earned the right to be able to get paid a good amount of money. And the auction sort of, instead of, unless they come out of the auction at the right time and they're, they're either haven't been playing or they've been injured or they've been let go for another reason, they don't have the ability to get that kind of payday and then you're, what you're doing is you're overpaying players who might never even play in the IPL. And it doesn't really make sense. And it's setting up a very bad precedent from, you know, players really get upset when someone gets paid $2 million and they get paid hundred grand and they have to do that person's job. <coughs> That's a really big thing. And I, I just think that there's a lot of flaws within that system. And I also understand why they like it and, you know, why, why it's still around. Um, but it's not necessarily... Um, I don't think it gets the best cricket and I don't think it gets the best squads. Uh, Greeny says, uh, since most of them are domestic talents, what must it 
take for international tier captains to not give unsolicited advice to underbakes younger captains they play under in the, the BBL? Um, yeah, I mean, the one thing I would say on, on that, and you could put this across all domestic cricket, is generally domestic players are probably better captains than international players. And I say this because generally domestic players spend a lot more time actually captaining. So if you're playing for someone who's captained 50 times and you're an international player, you might not have captained that many times, right? So it's a bit different if you are an international tier captain, as you said, but even then you might not have actually captained that much. And the other thing that you're assuming is, is that the international tier captains are better than domestic tier captains. I'm not sure that makes sense because it's almost it, how often do we ever pick anyone based on their captaincy skill? So the best captains, you might, the best captains in the world might be club cricketers for all we know, because it's not like we are pushing people up the system based on their captaincy skills alone. So I'm not sure that that one, Greeny, completely makes sense. I understand what you're saying. What you're saying is how does some big international captain feel when they have to you know, go out on the field and some player they've never heard of is running the team. I get it. I get the, your, your general point there. But from a, a skills base, I'm not sure that the international tier captain is better than the domestic tier captain. Uh, but it's a great question. Oren says, uh, with uh, one win in three big nations uh, for, uh, for away teams this year in Tess, is it a sign of things to come and the idea of a centralized league any further on within the ICC? Yeah, there's no centralized league happening. No one wants that as, at the moment, as far as I can tell. I'm the only one who talks about that. Um, yeah, I've been thinking about that a little bit. With, you know, I was looking at the T20 cricket, which is probably the most developed in some ways just because it's been professionalized to a level that test cricket and one-day cricket hasn't been. And looking at the fact that we have kind of six teams at the top and then we have a breakaway, how long before we then have three teams at the top and then a breakaway, um, you know, and eventually it should just be India at the top realistically. Um they should already be the best team in the world in all three formats consistently uh, and winning World Cups with it and everything else. Um, so, yeah, I, I I mean, it wasn't that long ago we thought England was a bit of a disgrace. <laughs> um, you know, uh, it does feel like we're going through a point where, again, a little bit like what happened with Australia and their professionalism and West Indies and their professionalism, um, that things change. Still think South Africa is producing a lot of talent, at least on the bowling end. We know that New Zealand found a way of developing talent that was better probably than India, England, and Australia did. Part, part of that is easier because you have fewer players. But I certainly think that that was the case. And Pakistan is probably still has untapped potential when it comes to players. So I'm not sure we're completely looking at a breakaway. But you look at Pakistan, South Africa, and New Zealand at the moment as international sides. Pakistan's obviously a little bit in disarray. New Zealand's coming to the end of a golden generation. Um, and South Africa's going through so many issues and can't find any batters. does feel like that it, we could have three teams at the top. Obviously, Sri Lanka could suddenly spurt back up. And you know, Bangladesh, uh, I think, in the best position I've seen them since they've been uh, in test, test cricket. So perhaps uh, from that perspective, uh, it won't be the end of the world. But, um, but yes, uh, it's... It could be that breakaway, and it could be for the professionalism reason. Oh, another one from Green. Uh, 
Without naming names, do you know any LGBTQ plus male cricketers um, at pro level at the moment? So I'm, I'm assuming he means non-out players. No. Don't think I know any players who are, who are out with their teammates or with people that like me who would know who um, have made that pu- uh, public. There are always rumors, obviously. Um, but no, I, I don't know anyone specifically uh, like that. But, you know, it would certainly be gay players. <laughs> I think that's fairly clear. Uh, Alex says, in your podcast with Rory Dollard, you say that Root will be remembered as a batter and first and captain second. What aspect of Stoke 3 do you think we remember first? I think probably the big moments. That can change if Baz Ball is legit and he does it for you know three or four years, of course. But I think the big moments is probably what uh, Stokes is going to be remembered for first. I mean, his numbers still probably aren't as good as they should be. And he could be a kind of I'm, – I'm, probably the other cricketer that springs to mind the most is Keith Miller, who was probably very, very similar to Ben Stokes, maybe a slightly better bowler um, and probably a slightly better batter as well. Um, but probably end up with a worse batting average, I would have thought. Um but, you know, the ability to bat top four um, and take the new ball in a very strong side. You know, Keith Miller was different gravy, as they say. But Keith Miller was also a player that sort of historically was known as someone who played when he wanted to play, I think is probably the best way of putting it. And I think from that perspective, um, you know, you certainly then have a situation that I wouldn't say that Ben Stokes is quite like that, but there are perhaps games where Ben Stokes is not as queued up um, to play in you know, and everyone gets up for different things. You know, there there's a famous a thing in county cricket. There are certain players who are only good when the uh, when the TV cameras are on in county cricket. You know, we you hear these sorts of things over and over again. Um, and you know, very good uh, tennis players who don't particularly do well any anything outside of majors and all that sort of thing. Um, I think Ben Stokes will be remembered for big moments because I think we already proven that. Uh, Hurtre Viz says, can basketball work for teams other than England? Uh, no, uh, I don't think so. Um, the reason I don't think it can is because no one else can bat like them in white ball cricket. So, I mean, just technically, basketball could work for anyone. But the reason it works for England is they have a plethora of batters who can score big chunks of runs at around a runner ball and faster. And there is no, they're the only team in ODI cricket who scores at more than a run of ball. And the other teams who score at more than a run of ball, around a run of ball, kind of, you know, either have fast starts or fast ends, right? Whereas England are scoring specifically between the 10th over and the 40th over at that. And they have a huge amount of players who have the ability to do that. And they could bring more of them in as well. That doesn't appear to be something that we've seen with anywhere else. And we already know that they have the ability to score more runs in one-day cricket than anyone else. So from that perspective, I would say no. This, for me, feels a lot more like what the West Indies did rather than perhaps what Australia did. And what the West Indies did was they looked around and they went, what is our strength? Let's play our strength. And in some ways, McCullum has, maybe as an outsider, did what Clive Lloyd probably wanted to do, but it took Clive Lloyd a long time to eventually get to four genuine fast bowlers. Whereas McCullum had a clean slate of a team that was absolutely doing terrible and was an outsider and just went, we're going to go with this. 
And I think, you know, looking back, Lloyd probably would have liked that. But I think, I think I'm right in saying that it took them 15 or 20 tests to consistently have the four fast bowlers on their own. So it was 76 um, when it started. And I, th- I think it's about 20 tests later. Um, I, I have I've written it before, but I can't remember the number off the top of my head. But it wasn't an instant thing. But from that perspective, you know, we saw West Indies change the lengths that people bowled and they changed the speed at which people bowl. Uh, and by speed, I mean the speed of overs and the speed of deliveries. But no one actually copied what the West Indies did. Australia came in with a slightly different method. Their, their batters were a little bit more attacking in a different kind of way. Uh, they they used spin a lot more, um, and uh, they probably had more attacking kinds of fields than uh, the West Indies. And it was probably more about, you know, theirs was probably more about the channel outside of stump rather than that back of a length, um, you know, sort of heavy ball. So... No team really copied the West Indies. And the reason was that they all, many of them tried, but they didn't have. I mean, what did you need to copy that West Indies? You probably need nine fast bowlers, right? <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? And to copy baseball again, you're going to need a lot of players who will be able to do this. Um, and the right kind of players at the right kind of positions in their career as well. You know, you look at someone like Bairstow, This is kind of his last chance as a test match player. Maybe that's a bit unfair, but, you know, at a certain point, you've got McCullum just telling him to go out there and whack it. If it, if it doesn't work for him, it doesn't work. At this stage, you know, he was averaging in the mid-30s anyway. So certainly um, from that point, um, things have changed quite a bit. So, yeah, I don't, I don't imagine there are going to be too many other teams who are going to be able to do that into the future. All right. I'm just going to have... That's too early. I'm just going to have one more ad and I'm just going to go through your questions, see if there's anything else there and uh, I'll get back to you. Whether it's missing flights or retirements out of the blue, whether it's resignations or bans, as the old saying goes, there's never a quiet day in West Indies cricket. So make sure you listen to West Indies on 99.94 to stay up to date with all the latest fallout with the teams in Maroon. Chinod says, will you be following and tracking the Women's T20 World Cup? Yeah, I'm hoping to. Um, uh, good time zone for me, which is important. Uh, and I don't, I, it's in my diary. And generally, if it's in my diary, that means it's going to work. That said, just trying to think if it overlaps with, I might have some other work at that stage. Uh, but I think I might have some work with TalkSport that might overlap with it a little bit. But but yes, uh, it's in my plans to be following and covering that one. Uh, the last one was in New Zealand. It's just New Zealand's kind of the the place that I I can cover things, but um, not particularly the way that I would like to. Uh, whereas South Africa is a really good time zone for me. So hopefully, yes. Oren says this is mainly just a chance to talk about Luca and the Joker. But do you think that Test cricket to, could become too similar to basketball in Europe? I mean. Basketball has just such an incredible history in Europe. And so basketball, I don't know how many people know this because it was known as such an American sport, but my um, uh, grandmother was born in uh, 1920-ish. I think that's right. And she played basketball in Australia when she was a kid. And I'm pretty sure... Uh, if I remember the DMVR documentary that, you know, basketball, it was in Serbia and 
at a very early stage as well. I'm not saying it wasn't in some of these European places. Uh, I'm not saying, sorry, I'm not saying cricket wasn't in them. What I'm saying is that I think basketball, you know, went went very strongly. And if you have a look that, you know, Greek, French, um, Spanish, you know, they have these really, really strong uh, basketball connections that have been going for a long time. Because of the way the cricket was run, there was no real reason for that to happen. And also that basketball seems to have grown almost attached to football, which is interesting if you look at the history of Europe, of course. You know, you have um, AC Milan um, started as a cricket club, for instance. But it seems to be that, that cricket and football separate at a certain stage in Europe. And football and basketball have more more of a, a, a relationship, and that seems to help basketball in that, in that sort of way. Um, so that was probably a big boom for basketball in Europe. If you're asking me why we can't have top players, uh, you know, coming out of Europe uh, in cricket in, you know, 20, 30, 40 years time, there's no real reason why we can't. It's just going to be how strong cricket is in, in each of those individual areas. And if you, you know, you, if you look at the sort of Yugoslavian uh, area, you know, we know how strong that was in basketball in the 80s and 90s. We're a long way off Europe, anywhere in Europe having something like that in cricket. But there is a huge push towards cricket in Europe for many different reasons. And a lot of it has to do with immigration. A lot of it has to do with refugees. But also a lot just has to do with it's another team sport. Um, you know, it's, uh, it, it's got a bit of a, a, a little bit of funding coming through to it at times. Um, if it can get into the Olympics and everything else, I don't think there's any reason why uh, it can't be there. But I, don't, I think we're... You know, it, you could make an argument if you wanted to that what three, three of the top five basketballers on the planet are all uh, born in Europe. I think Giannis was born in Europe too. I'm pretty sure he was, um, and all certainly were all schooled in basketball in Europe. Um, and if you're asking me when that would happen in cricket, like we're nowhere near that because you have to remember just the levels of basketball that have been played in Europe for a very very long time. So we're way off having, you know, the uh, Nikola Jokic of, um, of cricket. What would Nikola Jokic be in cricket? It'd have to be a, it'd almost be like a spinner with a fast, like a, a Freedy type player who couldn't bat at all, I would assume. Anyway, uh, but, but yeah, that's, that's the, the background of those sorts of things that you have. To, it's not just a one-off situation, right? You need a lot more. Um, things to be able to happen. And, you know, basketball didn't get good in Europe overnight. It took a long time. But also basketball was, outside of the NBA at least, certainly a more global sport and was more open. And if you got good in basketball in Puerto Rico or uh, Argentina or, you know, Australia, um, you know, Philippines, you had the ability to, you know, to easily go and qualify for World Cups and um, and all those uh, sorts of things. That's not quite the case of the way that cricket has grown, as we know. Um, and also, basketball was slightly more professional, had more money available to it in a way than cricket did. Shri says, uh, you planning to start Pakistan on 99.94? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, we're, the plan is to have you know, every international team. Uh, you know, if it was up to me, I'd have 160 different podcasts. Um, I've got a list somewhere. 
of all the different podcasts that I want to have. So yeah, certainly Pakistan. We um, at the moment we're just trying to shore up the podcasts that we have, make sure that the you know the production system is working the way that we want. We have to get advertising. Uh, we have to get investment. You know, all these sorts of things are happening with ninety nine point nine four. But I've you know I've already talked to hosts when it comes to Pakistan. I've already talked to hosts when it comes to Bangladesh. Um, there's another country. Uh, I've got a list of people from New Zealand um, that I want to get involved. You know, uh, potential people in Zimbabwe as well. So from that perspective, a lot of things are ready to go. I'd like to have a women's podcast. Um, I'd like to have a T20 podcast, you know, a fantasy podcast, you know, and not to mention you know, IPL teams, PSL teams, big bash teams, hundred teams, major league teams, um, whatever the league is in South Africa, et cetera, et cetera. So we're looking at doing that, you know, all in. Um, but at the moment, we just haven't been able to get the level of investment we need to, to shore up the company. So Tree, if you have a uh, you know a, a an uncle uh, with too much money who likes career podcasts, uh, send him my way and uh, and I'll try and take his money off him. Or if you know a sponsor, your uncle I don't know owns a banana plantation and he wants his, his banana brand to get out there. All things cinema vodcast says, uh, "Hey Jared, what are your thoughts on Southie getting the Test captaincy ahead of Latham and Williamson giving it up instead of the T Twenty I captaincy?" Um. I think what we think of from the outside is probably different to what people think from the inside. As in, I would assume that there is a specific reason why Southie has got that. It might be that they want to split it up going ahead into the future. It might be that they think of Southie as a better tactician. So I think that perhaps Latham was thought of as maybe more of a backup captain than a frontline captain. That might have also been part of the reason. Um, but yeah, I, I haven't put too much into it. I, I'm just happy every time another bowler gets test captaincy. My biggest, the biggest interesting thing I had there was that that means that Saudi is fully dedicated to test cricket, which is quite interesting considering what's just happened with Bolt. Um, uh, uh, yeah. And that, you know, he, he's not going to be disappearing anytime soon. Um, but I, I mean, I haven't thought about it that much. Uh, the Williamson thing. I think if I was going to give up a form of captaincy, I, you know, um, because I wanted to work on my game a bit more, which I can only assume is why uh, is part of the reason that he did it. Test captaincy probably makes more sense than T Twenty captaincy, but yeah, from a long term perspective, um, I can't see why Williamson. I can't see Williamson playing in the next World Cup. So um, if that is the situation, then I would have thought that it probably would have made more sense for him to give it up, but. Uh, you know, I, I, you look at your schedule, you look at what you're interested in, you look at how much time you're spending on each job. Um, I suppose it's no, not that much different to what anyone does you know, professionally. Outcast says, do you think the WTC must be divided into two divisions? Well, it should have been started in two divisions of seven and five. Um, I don't care if it's seven and seven. Um, I don't, yeah, six and six, eight and eight. Yes. Uh, it should be a league and it should be done correctly. Um, you know, it's something I've written about and talked about quite a bit on this channel. Um, it's a, it's not really a league. It's just we put a trophy on the end of us, uh, of of a bunch of bilateral games and the whole thing's a bit ridiculous, if we're being honest. Uh, Mansa Hedge says, given that MLB, NBA, and FAL pay about 50% of league revenue uh, as players' salary, are players in the IPL still grossly underpaid relative to the value they generate? Yes. They're the most undervalued 
players probably in any professional sport in the world. Um, the only ones that would be different, I suppose, would be Brazilian footballers who aren't playing in Europe, perhaps, or, or America or Asia. Um, even then, I wouldn't have thought that that undervalued. It's ridiculous how little IPL players are paid compared to the money. Absolutely ridiculous. Um, embarrassing um, the way that they do it. Part of the reason is that the Asian players directly, and this is India, but it's also been the case in some of the other Asian nations, haven't unionized. Um, and by not unionizing, you don't have any collective power. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's scandalous how little IPL owners have to pay their players considering how much money they make. It's a great um, business model for them, not particularly a great business model for the players. Um, and they're the ones who should be getting the lion's share of the money, not the owners. Uh, well, not the lion's share, but at least the equal share. They're the ones who go out there. They're the ones whose bodies are spent at the end they're the ones who get attacked over and over again online um they're the ones you know uh, who who's muck up their family life in order to you know uh, have the life of professional athletes and at the end of their careers aren't really qualified to do much else other than take lowly paid coaching jobs um so yes uh, i think it's a bit ridiculous uh, that players get like what they get it actually makes more sense from an international perspective so we know the Australian players are, are, you know, I don't know if they're quite at 50%, but they're up towards that 50% mark. And that is based on the American sports model and, and some of the Australian, other Australian sports models. That doesn't actually make as much sense when you go through it because Cricket Australia's job is to develop talent and to pay the top-end players, whereas the NBA um, or the MLB doesn't really develop talent. Uh, what they do is they hope that college systems and overseas countries more often than not develop their players um, and they come over um, and, uh, and, and then play for them. So there's a very different structure here. And the IPL is, again, not trying to develop players, right? So it should be a very equal split. Whereas the BCCI could make the very good argument when it comes to playing the international players of, well, we don't want to pay you 50% um, as professional players because we also want a lot of our money to go into developing um, the next generations of Indian cricketers, or Indian cricketers could argue that where is all that money going? Because it's not. But you know that that could be a, that's a very realistic way of looking at things. Uh, whereas in the IPL and most of these leagues, they're not developing players, just owners buying players and selling them um, and getting rid of them. They're not making sure the players are coming through from the age of eight. They don't have academies. They don't have competitions that they have to pay for. They don't have to make sure that the local club cricket scene is strong enough. You know, Mumbai's not worried about any of that sort of stuff. So they should play their players um, a lot more money. I would say the most leagues should, by the way. Um, it's just that it's probably more stark with the IPL because we know how much money they make. Uh, Chattel says, do you think Australia has a chance of winning versus India in February, uh, considering India's top four woes and injury clouds over Jadeja and Bumrah? Well, no, <laughs> not the series. Um, I thought they played really well last time. Was it last time? Was it the time before? God. Was it 2016? I can't even remember. The 2016 tour, I thought they prepared really well for 2017, whatever year it was. Um, they thought about it quite a bit, and, and they got there You're really, really um, prepared for playing in India. I just don't think that that is going to be the case this time. 
And I think that that is probably the difference between Australia being successful and not. Your points about, you know, Jadeja and Boomer, very, very valid. Top four, not as worried about India's top four woes um, at home as I would be away from home. Um, there's some things that Australia have done very, very well. And, you know, this whole thing of, you know, not taking Travis Head, he probably won't make any runs there. It's very fair. I'd take him on the tour, by the way, even if he was a non-playing member, just to get him in the nets practicing and and working on all of those sorts of issues. He's not going to learn it, you know, back home in Adelaide or playing in county cricket. But if, if you say that Australia could win test matches, definitely. Um, I think I had, if you look at one of my videos the other day, I did a bit of a projection on Pakistan and, and the World Test Championship. I think I had India winning that series 2-1 or 3-1. Uh, Without going through the venues that much, that that probably makes the most sense to me. Um, I know India won at Dharamashala last time, but I think there's another test match there. I think that's right. Um, and, uh, you know, I think Australia would probably have a better bowling lineup now to be able to exploit that um, this particular time, and if, especially if Bournemouth's not playing. Um, but, yeah, I can, I can see Australia winning because I do think they're a very good side. I can't necessarily see them winning um, the series, though. I think so. I, it's one of those things where they would have to change the way they play, or so much would have to go right for them um, in order for that to happen. And I don't think. Um, oops, sorry. Wrong question up there. Um, and I don't. I don't particularly see that happening at the moment. But you know, the way that these series are currently happening, I kind of. I was actually shocked by how many upsets there were in 2022 in terms of uh, men's and women's cricket. And while the professionalism is getting out there, it means that the top teams are more professional and better teams. But I also wonder if they are sometimes less prepared than some of the other teams and they've thought about that series less. You know, if you're, if you're playing for Sri Lanka or the West Indies and you've got, what, 20 or 25 tests in the next five years, it's a lot of time to prepare for each test. England have got that many tests before I finish the sentence. <laughs> it's very hard for their players and their, uh, you know, uh, backrooms um, staff to actually prepare for all these matches in the way that some of these other teams can. Also, when it comes to, you know, warm-up tours and all these other things, really does feel that um, there is, there's an opening for smart teams um, who get their act together against some of these better teams. And, and as I said, there was, it was a shocking amount of what, uh, upsets when you factor in the women's world cup and the men's world cup that were played in 2022. And so from that perspective, um, uh, you know, if Australia were to, to play very well against India and I don't know, win two tests, I don't know, it's two tests enough to perhaps win the series, maybe. Um, and, and so they could certainly pull something off there, but I wouldn't be, I don't think I'd be putting any, you know, specific money on um, Australia winning, but, I think I'd also be quite shocked if Australia didn't win a test um, just because I think with that bowling attack and the way that they play, um, I do have the ability to sort of run through someone at any one stage. Anyway, uh, that is me done. Thank you very much uh, to everyone who got their Patreon questions in. Remember, if you want your question definitely uh, asked, you need to get involved with um, a Patreon. If you, um, uh, if you can't do that, you can always now do super chats. Uh, we we do the question. Uh, I do the wagon wheels directly on YouTube now, uh, so you can come over live and do that. But uh, remember to like, subscribe, hit the bell icon, do all the things that you do. 
you know, for the person, I think it was Shri, who asked before about Pakistan on 99.94. Honestly, the, the best thing you could do to support 99.94, if, and I've said this a lot, is listen and share to everything that we are currently making. The more, uh, uh, you know, the more people that we can get to listen, the more shows that we can do. My, uh, my uh, plan is humongous. And what I would love to do is cover cricket the way that I believe it should be covered and uh, will hopefully be covered one day in the future. And I'd like to be the person um, involved in that. So the more people uh, who can listen to 99.94 podcasts out there, uh, the better. Um, and uh, we have uh, a, a bunch of different shows out there at the moment that you can find. There's obviously Mitchell Johnson's show. We have Edges and Surges. Um, if you've never seen that one before, that's worth looking at. But there's uh, you know an absolute bunch of other shows. So much show, so much show that I can't even remember them all now. So I'll just play you this ad and I'll see you again next time. Thanks for listening to Wagon Wheel on 99.94. Remember to download our app or just search for 99.94 where you find podcasts or on YouTube. This show has an ad-free version via Patreon, which also allows you to ask questions before anyone else and many other extras as well. There is a link in the show notes. And if you want more content, well, I have good news for you because we have a lot of things. You can follow us on YouTube where we make all kind of crazy stuff like the complete history of New Zealand opening batters and how Kagisa Rabada was dismissed from a zombie ball. We do a similar thing on TikTok. I also have an emailer that sends out a couple of columns a week, and we run another podcast called Double Century on the History of Cricket. This podcast is hosted by me, Jared Kimber. It is produced by Nick McCorriston. We also have a great support team from 42, with Rati Joshi on socials, Orijoti Senapia producing podcasts, Maida Akam producing some of the shows, and Makunda Banredi as the head of YouTube content. <laughs>